This episode of Value Hive is brought to you by Tegas. If you enjoy listening to Value Hive, you'll love the Tegas product. Tegas has the world's largest collection of instantly available expert interviews on all the public and private companies that you care about. All you have to do is log in. So if you're tired of high cost and time consuming expert research calls, give Tegas a try and see for yourself why many of the most trusted and well-respected hedge funds, mutual funds, family offices, allocators, and VCs rely on Tegas to scale their expert research and to get the critical information they need faster than ever. You can sign up for a free trial at tegas.co forward slash value hive. That's tegas.co forward slash value hive. And as a personal anecdote, I use Tegas literally every single day. It's the first resource I use when I start researching uh, a new investment, and it's one of the last things I do uh, before I finish up rounding out my research, and I know you'll love it as much as I do. Before we dive into today's conversation, I want to talk to you about MIT Investment Management Company, also known as Matimco, the investment office of MIT. Each year, Matimco invests with a handful of new emerging managers who it believes can earn exceptional long-term returns in support of MIT's mission. In order to help the emerging manager community more broadly, they created EmergingManagers.org, a website for emerging manager stock pickers. For those looking to start a stock picking fund or those just looking to learn about how others have done it, I highly recommend this site. You'll find essays and interviews by successful emerging managers, service providers used by MIT's own fund managers, essays Matimco has written for emerging stock pickers, and more. Matimco also occasionally and opportunistically hires new members for their investment team. To view the job description, please visit matimco.org slash global dash investor. That's M-I-T-I-M-C-O dot O-R-G slash global dash investor. The Matimco team spends their time learning about great businesses and investments, working with exceptional investors around the world in order to support generations of MIT innovators. All right, Jared Dillian, you just released your book, Those Bastards, which is an incredible title. Um, kind of want to kind of want to know how you how you came how you came with that title. I know you've got you've got that in your in your Substack handle, but before we dive into writing and all of this and markets and and psychology, I read that you were a fairly competitive tennis player in high school, maybe you know around you know eighteen, nineteen, late teens, high school area. So, as someone that's a big tennis player themselves, I actually played this morning. Um, who's your favorite player and who do you think is going to win Roland Garros this year? I can answer the first question. Uh, my favorite player was Agassi. Okay. Yep. Cause when Agassi learned how to play tennis, they told him to just hit the piss out of the ball and eventually it was going to start going in, which <laughs> is pretty much how I learned how to play tennis. So <laughs> that's awesome. I, the, 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 the first tennis racket I ever got was like an Agassi brand racket. And um, I actually thought it was cool hearing the story about it. I had the mullet at the time. When I learned how to play tennis, I had the mullet. So, yeah. See, I I never had that. I'm starting starting to get a little bit of that. But um, I always loved his story about how he fell out of love with tennis and then came back to it. I think there's a lot of similarities between his his story and experience with tennis and a lot of people's experience in markets. Yeah. So, and you can't answer uh, the question about Roland Garros. You, 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 You don't have a favorite? No, I don't. <laughs> All right. Well, let's dive into, you know, again, kind of these analogies between tennis and trading. Um, I find myself thinking about this a lot in terms of just whether it's burnout or whether it's, um, you know, picking picking your spots, picking your battles, learning how to hit, how to hit safe shots, not playing um, stupid. And as, you know, someone that, that, that has played the game, what are, what is, what is your experience with, you know, any, any lessons you've learned from, from the game of tennis that could translate over to, to markets and trading? Lessons from tennis that translate into trading. Um, gosh. Um, I mean, it's been so long since I played, I mean, I really, so what happened is, um, I quit playing tennis, uh, in high school. Okay. And then, um, when I, when I joined the Coast Guard, you know, uh, there's a lot of racquetball courts on military bases, and mm. I took up racquetball, and I eventually became a much better racquetball player than I was a tennis player. I actually got pretty good in racquetball, um, and I played here in Myrtle Beach for 10 years, and the best I did was I came in third in the citywide tournament, which is pretty good, you know. Um, so, I mean, I can, I can talk about you know, lessons. I I mean, I'm not, you know, believe it or not, 
there's a there's this there's sort of this misconception that to be a trader you have to be an athlete there's a lot mm. of parallels between sports and trading and for me that wasn't the case um i'm a terrible athlete and i'm 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 not saying that because i'm uncoordinated or fat or anything like that like i'm saying that because i just wasn't a good competitor um when it came to sports i was I would get down on myself. I would get discouraged. Uh, I would lose my temper. I was kind of a head case in sports and not just tennis and racquetball, but baseball and volleyball and anything I did. Like I just didn't have a good mental makeup, mm -hmm. but oddly enough, when it comes to trading, I have a really, really good mental makeup. Um, and there doesn't, there, I don't, I don't have any explanation as to why I'm, you know, I'm more fit to be a trader than I was an athlete. So I don't know if that answers your question, but I mean it doesn't necessarily answer my question, but it 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 unlocks just a bunch of interesting thoughts on 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 why you were suited at to be a trader and like the mindset of a of a trader versus an athlete. Um and you know, it kind of kind of makes me wonder like how you got started in this in this entire business anyways. So if you could give people a background, you know, for those that might not know you or maybe they're just picking up a copy of your book. Um, you know, who is Jared Dillian and how did you get started in finance and markets? Yeah, I, I grew up in Connecticut on the eastern side of the state. Uh, I went to the Coast Guard Academy for college, which is one of the military academies. Uh, graduate graduated, was a commissioned officer. Spent two years at sea. Then I then I uh, was I did intelligence for three years, and uh, I got my business degree. I got an MBA from the University of San Francisco, and I got hired by Lehman in two thousand one. Um, okay. So the first three years I did index arbitrage, and the last four years I did ETF trading. And the funny thing is, is that my whole upbringing, my experience in the military. Like I did not have much of a risk appetite at all. Like I basically had zero risk appetite. Like anytime I had any market exposure, I felt very nervous and very anxious. And I really had to learn how to take risk. You know, the military is a very risk averse environment, especially the Navy and the sea services. Like basically the culture is that if you make one mistake, your career is over. So nobody wants to make a mistake and nobody takes any risk. And that was what I kind of learned. And then I came to Wall Street where the attitude was very different, where you wanted to take as much risk as possible. So that was something I kind of had to learn over time. And it, it wasn't easy, but you know, I would say at the end of my seven years, I turned into one of the biggest risk takers on the trading floor. Uh, but it was something I really had to work on. So how did you like, walk me through that journey of super risk averse to becoming a big a big risk taker i'm sure there was like really high successes along the way and then like you know pretty substantial losses or maybe not but walk us through that that kind of maturity into someone that learned and you know was comfortable taking risk well when i was doing index arbitrage i mean basically i would only take risk for a period of a second or two wow right okay. basically i'm arbitraging futures with the underlying stocks so I would trade a basket of stocks and then I would get filled on my future. So I really only had exposure for like a second. So it was actually kind of perfectly suited for me. And then, you know, I was for ETFs, I was, we were basically doing customer facilitation. So we were handling really large trades, you know, uh, a million, two million shares of spies and stuff like that, like three, $400 million trades. Wow. Um, and I got used to taking risk and then I started a prop book where um you know i was just trading enormous size of stuff like for example i did a you know yield curve steepener where i had 200 million worth of tens and a billion worth of twos you know so this is um and like like i said like this is this is this is just all me like nobody told me to do that um the prop book was kind of interesting you know lehman was a place where you didn't have to ask permission to do things you could just do them Obviously, this is pre-financial crisis, pre-Dodd-Frank, um, but I just opened an account and started trading in it, and I was super profitable, and nobody stopped me. So, mm. <laughs> yeah, that sounds that sounds about right. And you 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 mentioned that you were on the trading floor. Is that like the physical floor? Because I because I think some people listening might not know like what a physical trading floor looks like now, since everybody's behind a screen. Well. I mean, there's there's basically two types of trading floors. 
there's an open outcry trading floor in a public exchange. And most people are familiar with the New York Stock Exchange. The New York Stock Exchange is basically a TV studio now. There's not really a lot of trading that goes on there. Uh, all the physical trading floors are gone. All the options exchanges, the CME, this border trade, the NYMEX, the COMEX, all gone. Um, but the upstairs trading floors at banks and hedge funds are still there. And just picture a row of desks with computer monitors. And, you know, it's it's different nowadays because everything is so computer driven. But back then there was a lot of yelling. There was a lot of screaming, you know, people barking out orders and stuff. Doesn't really doesn't really happen anymore. Yeah, no, that makes sense. It's kind of uh, reminds me of um, I watched the uh, Madoff documentary on Netflix and got to see some of how you know Madoff's operation. And obviously, it was kind of like dramatized due to due to Netflix. But that's kind of the only exposure I have. I have to the trading floor. Um, how long did you end up staying at Lehman, and then what did you do after after you left there? I stayed for seven years. I left in 2008 at the bankruptcy, and then I started my newsletter. I started the Daily Dirt Nap. I've been doing that since 2008, along with a bunch of other stuff. I mean, I've you know I've written three books. Uh, those those bastards is my third book. I have a fourth one coming out next year. I also write for Malden Economics. I do a bunch of media appearances. Uh, also, going to grad school right now. I'm going to be graduating oh, in congrats. a couple of weeks. Yeah, that's yeah. awesome. That's awesome. Um, what made you switch and we can we can we can dive into really where i want to spend a lot of this podcast is kind of the craft of writing um and the only other writer i think i've had on this podcast is morgan housel which you know i think is a fantastic writer i learned a ton from 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 just listening to him um but you know as someone as someone who considers themselves a writer i just really want to pick your brain on kind of the whole craft and how you view it and when did when did you start writing and was writing one of these things where you know you kind of got bit in air quotes by the bug or was it like oh like maybe i'll try this and kind of see how it goes and you just naturally loved it well i was uh i was a writer in high school um i you know i contributed to the news the school newspaper for one thing but um there was actually a writing competition that was put on by the national council council of teachers of english and i entered that competition and I won an award, which was one of only 700 awards given in the entire country. It was actually kind of a big deal. And I remember when I won that award, I started getting all this uh, recruiting material from colleges to like go be an English major and be a writer, which wasn't really what I, I wanted to do. I wanted to be a math major. So when I went to the Coast Guard Academy, I majored in math, but I was still winning writing awards. I entered a couple competitions and run won writing awards. And then I didn't really do anything with it. Um, I don't know if you've read Street Freak or you know my story in general, but I don't. Um, while I was at Lehman, I was hospitalized for bipolar disorder. I'm very public about having bipolar disorder. And while I was hospitalized, there was a woman who came into, um, you know, the wing and she did like a, a writing seminar. Um, so I went, now this woman was Siri Hustvet, who is a very accomplished writer. And I guess she lives in New York. She does live in New York. And th she was doing this as kind of, you know, her charity work, her community service. And uh, I was in that room. And, you know, this is like this is like the low point of my life. I'm like in a, in a mental hospital and, yeah. you know, like my head is shaved and like I just look like a patient. And, you know, so I'm sitting in there and she ha she has us do this writing assignment and I give it to her. And she says, this is amazing. You should be a writer. Wow. So think of the context, you know, I'm, I'm in the middle of a psych ward and this woman yep. tells me I should be a writer. So then I go back to Lehman and I start writing and I start writing market commentary for the ETF desk and it became super popular and it went like viral and I had like thousands of subscribers and that's where I got the idea to do the Daily Dirt Nap, the newsletter. Uh, and then about a year after I did the Daily Dirt Nap, I was approached about writing a book about Lehman Brothers, which became Street Freak. So, and then off you went, and yep. and and now you're on you're on Substack. You just released those bastards, and that's that's a crazy story uh, to go from you know being in a psych ward to having this esteemed author look at your work and be like, oh my gosh, this is incredible. Like, did you did you go in with any expectations, like? 
oh i think i think this piece is good let me see what it is or like like what were you what were you thinking when you when you wrote that piece and sent it well for, first of all like it, it i didn't send it like we i wrote it by hand with a pen and a piece of paper like in a classroom like in, like in this room yeah okay uh and then i handed it to her um yeah so that's pretty much it <laughs> that's wild and so really what i want to what i want to dive into and this you know this 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 might sound glide but I want to learn from you how you how you learned your style and your craft and kind of how you learned to write and um you know take us back to maybe maybe you're you're writing that story for that author or you go back to lehman you're writing that etf commentary how did you learn how to craft like the style and the voice that you had which i know like that's i think what separates a lot of good writers from great writers and one of my favorite writers is anthony bourdain and I absolutely love his voice. I think I think he's the best writer on the planet. And um, you know, when I when I when I read your stuff, when I read your Substack, I'm like, this is another guy that's got something like that. So, how did you develop that? Well, first of all, thanks for saying that. That's really nice. Um, I think everybody kind of has their own style. Like, I tend to be very Gonzo, especially early in my writing career. I had this very Gonzo style. Uh, the novel that I wrote, uh, All the Evil of This World, is extremely Gonzo. Um, I tend to have a very stream of consciousness style. I don't have much of a filter. There isn't anything in my brain that's like preventing me from saying anything politically incorrect or anything like there's just no filter. Right. And a lot of people describe my writing as very honest. You know, you mentioned Morgan Housel, like in terms of writers, like he is very good. Like he is, he, he has very clear and honest writing and he's also a good thinker. I mean, in addition to being a good writer, he's also a very good thinker. Um, and my, I would say I am kind of like the dirty Morgan Housel, you know what I mean? Like, like my writing is, is also honest, but I take many, many more risks. Um, sometimes it works out, sometimes it doesn't. Um, but as you, I mean, if you've been reading my Substack, you kind of have a feel for what I'm talking about. Yeah. So, uh, the one thing my writing is, is it's not very literary. And I've been writing short stories for the last six months and sending them out to journals and stuff. And I'm not having a lot of success at getting stuff published. I did get one published. Um, but I mean, really, like the pinnacle for me would be to get a short story published in the New Yorker or something like that, you know, or the Paris Review or something, mm -hmm. you know, something similar. Um, but I, that's, it's, it's, for me that is kind of the path of most resistance i'm just not good at that type of writing um but that's what i want to do so what's different about short stories than say market commentary that makes it more challenging uh storytelling is is hard i mean i have written a novel uh it wasn't super successful um, the novel actually was probably the filthiest thing I've ever written. I mean, it's like beyond X-rated. It's like insane. So the word of mouth on the book was like not very good because people just wouldn't recommend it to people because it was so dirty. Yeah. Um, but in terms of like literary writing is all about sensual details. Okay. So... I don't really write from my heart. I write from my head. I'm very analytical. You know, I was a math major. So it, short story writing is not analytical, right? There's nothing analytical about it. It's sensual. So it's your, it's what you're taking in with your five senses. So you're describing things that you're smelling, things that you're seeing, things that you're feeling. And I just, I'm, I'm not as, I'm not as good at that, you know? Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's kind of a different, different, different toolkit. Um, when you when you approach writing new pieces for something like your Substack, how do you like do you do you do you have kind of this workflow? Like I know some writers going to say like every morning at nine I sit down and I write and I spend an hour writing, or um, you know I, I I have this backlog of ideas that I'm that I'm churning through. Like how do you determine what to write about and then and then sitting down and actually doing the process? Is it is it ritualistic or is it more kind of serendipitous? Well, first of all, you know, I have to, I write my newsletter every day. It's a daily dirt nap. So it comes out every day. Okay. So that's about 1500 words a day. And I do that first thing in the morning. I write that in the morning because I tend to be sharper in the morning. 
Um, then I have other newsletters, then I have short stories, then I have, you know, the Substack essays and all this stuff. I mean, I'm basically writing on average about three to 4,000 words a day. Uh, wow. and I'm writing, you know, I'll be on the couch at nine o'clock at night writing a Substack. You know what I mean? So when you ask me my routine, my routine is I just write all the fucking time, you know, <laughs> like, <laughs> like I just do it. I just do it all the time. And, um, and the, the writing muscle is one that will atrophy the fastest. Mm. You know what I mean? Like yeah. if you're bench pressing and you can bench press like 285 and you take like a month off, like you're going to drop a little bit, but you'll be able to get back up to 285 in a couple of weeks. Yep. If you take time off of writing, you suck. Like it just, it, 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 you, it takes a really long time to get back into the zone. Um, so I try to write every, every single day, Saturday, Sundays, every single day I try to write. So, wow. Yeah. And that's, it's funny how similar, like good writers, um, like their suggestions on how to improve writing, what it comes down to for every single, like I've, I've got the Stephen King's book on writing in, in, in here. And I read it last year, every single great writer, they have the same exact mantra. Just, just write every day. And you wrote a piece on your Substack. It was titled "About Writing," and I like, I like this quote. I'm gonna, I'm gonna read it here. It says, um, "If you played tennis for eight hours a day, you would get pretty good at tennis. If you played piano for eight hours a day, you would get pretty good at 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 piano. It's no different. Writing is hard if you don't do it very often. It's a struggle. I write so much, and it's so easy that if I have a list of ten things to do, and writing is one of them, I will do writing first." Everyone else will procrastinate and postpone the writing until the end because they find it unpleasant. I actually enjoy it a lot. I just love that. Love that little snippet there. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's true. Like if I have a list of stuff to do that I like writing, I enjoy it a lot. Like a lot of people, for a lot of people, it's a chore. They don't want to do it. It's difficult, you know, but that's the thing that I do first. Are there ever any points in a day or a week or a year where you hate writing maybe temporarily? Uh, I don't, hate isn't the right word. Um, you know, I would say out of all the stuff I write, most of it is crap. Um, it, it, which is true of anybody, like 90% of it is crap. And I can tell you that when you're writing crap, it gets to be a little bit discouraging. You have a little bit of self-doubt. You're like, I suck. Like I, sh I should stop doing this. Um, so it's not that I hate it. It's just that, um, you know, uh, I, I have high standards and I, I just, I'm not always up to those standards. So mm. this is going to be a big question and it's, and it's one I struggle with um, sometimes, whether it's in writing or, or whether it's investing, like finding a great idea. Do you ever think, um, you know, this, this is kind of a uh, psychological uh, weapon I use against myself is, oh, I'm never going to write a piece as good as this blank you know, this one I just did, or this one I did four months ago, or like, you feel like you've kind of peaked in writing or even going back to investing. Like, let's say you make a great trade and you're like, man, like, I don't know if I'll ever make a trade as good as that one again. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. There's a short story I did about three or four months ago. That's just amazing. I, I love it. I absolutely love it. And, uh, after I wrote it, I was like, that's the best thing I'm ever going to do. Like for sure, it's the, it's the best thing I'm ever going to do, but it's never true. Like you go on to do better and better things all the time, mm -hmm. you know? So, um, I mean, I think part of the key is to challenge yourself and keep, uh, keep working on your craft. I mean, I mentioned that I'm in grad school right now. I'm getting a writing degree. I'm getting an MFA in writing. That's so awesome. I started grad school at the age of 46. I'm easily the oldest person in my classes. And I did this to get better at writing and it's absolutely helped, you know? So mm -hmm. actually I'm kind of wondering what I'm going to do after I graduate um, because I have to keep pushing myself, you know? Yeah. Well, that brings up a great, a great kind of, kind of discussion point because a, I want to, I want to know what you've learned from this, from this graduate degree process that, that, that you haven't before and maybe tools that you're adding, but then also, 
a lot of the ways to kind of improve and air quotes your writing tend to focus on more of like the grammatical, like, hey, make sure your sentences aren't run-ons, make sure you're not adding a lot of adverbs or, you know, cut all the fat. Um, but then the then the dichotomy to that is if you do so much of that, you 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 could lose some of your voice, or there's a propensity that you lose the voice, the natural voice that you have if you if you make your writing almost like too clean in a way, um, if that makes sense. And so kind of we'll take it we'll take it from 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 the latter point like how do you how do you edit and clean and touch up your writing without losing too much of the originality of maybe some of the you know mistakes that make your writing unique yeah that's that's a good question so um i break a lot of rules right but I, I i but i break them in all the right places you know what i mean so what like, does that mean cuz i actually don't know what that means well, for example, like one thing I do is I do a lot of tense shifting, you know? So in the span of one paragraph, I'll switch from past tense to present tense to past tense in the span of the same paragraph. Hmm. Um, and I really, I do that um, to, it, it really is a stylistic thing, you know what I mean? But I'm breaking rules, you know? Yeah. So um, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. That's just an example of one of the things that I do. Um I don't think that editing like takes the soul out of a piece, mm -hmm. right? Like one of the things that I've gotten really good at just in the last couple of years is editing my own work. And a lot of beginning writers, they write something and they say, this is perfect. It's, you know, the first, my, my first draft, it's perfect. Like, I don't want to change anything and it's not perfect. It sucks. Like you have to like, keep working on it and make it better. So, like I said, one of the things I've gotten better at is editing my own work and really being critical about my own writing, which takes a lot of practice. Like that takes a lot of practice. Mm -hmm. uh, I finished a short story about a month ago. And, you know, I, I read, I, I get like a lot of times when you write something, they call it, you have to put it in the freezer, right? So you have to walk away for like a month and come back to it and you see it with like a new set of glasses Yep, and and you get to read it with with a fresh perspective, and I went back and I read this thing, and I'm like, man, this is pretty bad. <laughs> <laughs> like I thought it was good, but it's actually it's it's not so good. Um, but I'm a little stuck because you know, like I said, I'm pretty good at editing my own stuff, but I'm like, I really don't know what to do. So mm -hmm. a lot of times it helps to be connected to a group of writers or other writers. So you can edit each other's stuff and get input from different people. It's not, a lot of people view writing as like a solo enterprise. You know, it's something you do yourself. Yep. Uh, but really you, you need to get feedback from a lot of people and you need good feedback. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, walk us through how you edit and what separates a good editor from a bad editor. A lot of times what I'm editing for is flow. You know what I mean? Yep. Like um, flow is kind of difficult to describe, but um, it's like when you read something, I mean, you've read my Substack essays and you know that the flow is very, very good. Like it's, yeah. it's, it's seamless and you're not getting hung up on words and stuff. And like, so I'm very, very good at editing for flow. Um, honestly, the biggest, the toughest part for me is not the actual writing but it's the inspiration like mm. that's that's the part that i struggle with you know i try to get a substack essay out every week yep. and there's some weeks i just don't really have anything interesting to say you know so a lot of times i'll be in the grocery store and i'll get an idea and i go on my phone and i write in the notes section of the phone and i write it down so i don't forget it you know what i mean yep but like that's that's the thing i struggle with more is the inspiration do you ever edit your own ideas where like you have an idea and then you look back in your phone and you're like man this is a shitty idea like <laughs> that happens to me all the time uh no not really actually no oh, well i need yeah. to i need to i need to go to the go to the same grocery stores as you then to get <laughs> to get better ideas um let's let's shift to like what i can and 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 again this is a bit of a selfish podcast and i i said this on the when i was when i was interviewing morgan housel because as a writer it's like man like i've got a great writer in front of me like kind of want to be selfish and ask how i can improve and so um 
I haven't sent you any of any of any of my work before this podcast, and you know maybe maybe I will after. Um, but if if someone's starting out, let's say they've been writing online for a few years, um, and they're wanting you know that next step, how like how to level up. Um, what would what would be the most common low hanging fruit that you've seen in other writers that have taken their skills from let's say you know a B minus B level to an A game level? It's really just practice. It's all it is, but mm -hmm. it's a lot of practice. There's a guy named Robert Olin Butler who's a fiction writer, and he wrote a book. It actually he didn't write a book. The book was his recorded lectures he was teaching at the University of Florida. And he was teaching a creative writing class. And he talked about the fact that the first million words that he wrote were terrible. Like three That's, novels, 40 so short depressing. stories. Like, I mean, he wrote a lot and it was all bad. And he had to write that first million bad words before it started getting better. Like it's, it, it's a lot of patience. It's a lot of discipline and it's a lot of practice. Yeah, I wonder if that million words translates into that whole 10,000 hour thing where it comes, you know. Yeah, for, like for sure. Yeah. Well, who who are some of your favorite writers? I know you just mentioned him, but do you have any favorites? Uh, there's a guy that passed away about 10 or 15 years ago. His name is Barry Hanna, and he's from Mississippi. He's my favorite writer of all time. Um, just just an insane person. Just, I mean, talk about taking risks. Like, he was... He was one of the he's one of the craziest writers I know. But the interesting thing about Barry Hanna was he never had a book sell more than seven thousand copies. Hmm. And yet, if you ask all the famous writers who their favorite writer is, they all say Barry Hanna. Yeah, you're writing it Weird. down. You, you I am to, writing you, it. You have to you have to read this. Yeah. I am writing so, it down. He has a short story collection called Airships. Um, okay. I, I recommend reading airships and in airships, there is a short story called testimony of pilot, which is the best thing I've ever seen written ever. It's the wow. best short story I've ever read. And I first read it when I was 21 years old, I read it, I read it, um, I guess a couple of months ago, six months ago, I was in tears. I was a puddle. It's wow. so good. Like it's so, so good. So, so what makes you, you mentioned a second ago that he's, you know, extremely risk-taking. He does some crazy things like, like what, what does he do that, that makes him stand out as a writer from com compared to others? He does a lot of things. One of the biggest things that he does is he plays with time, hmm. you know, like he'll have one paragraph where in the course of like 200 words, he'll span 30 years. And wow. he'll have the next paragraph that spans like a second. So it's very like time is not linear. You know what I mean? Like there's there, it, it like sort of shifts. It's like you're watching interstellar, but on pages. Yeah. 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 That's actually a good, good way of putting it. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's just genius. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to look him up and buy and buy some of his books. Um, but no, any so okay, so 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 Barry Hanna, anybody else? Do you read Matt Levine's work? Because I feel like you and Matt Levine are very similar. And I hope that's a compliment to you. Yeah. So uh I was an intern at Bloomberg as part of my grad school. I spent it, I spent a month at in the Bloomberg offices. Yep. Um in Bloomberg. I was at, I was in Bloomberg Opinion. I was a Bloomberg Opinion writer for five and a half years. They let me go back in October. Um, but I got to meet Matt. Uh, he didn't really want to talk to me. He was busy. I mean, he writes like 3000 words a day in his newsletter. He's super, super busy. Um, he, he has a very distinctive style, like for sure. Like you, it, it's very conversational. Um, I don't know if all is writing like that, but his, his money stuff letter is like very conversational, which I think is perfect because really what he's doing is he's educating, you know what I mean? And, while he's educating people, he's holding their hand and says, look, look, let me, let me show you step-by-step step how this works, you know? So that tone is perfect for that. Um, I mean, he's terrific. I don't know what Bloomberg is paying him, but it's not enough. I mean, he could mm -hmm. make multiples of that somewhere else. So that's actually you. I'm glad, I'm glad you brought up kind of the earnings potential for great writers. And 
with the, with the explosion of Substack, I have I have friends that write kind of investing specific Substacks where they'll you know write about ideas and do and do deep dives on companies and it's and I would say it's 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 more analytical most of the time than it is conversational, but I've always wondered if there's this market for a conversational kind of like what Matt Levine does with money stuff where people pay to not necessarily get you know actionable ideas that they can buy or sell or trade, but just things that they can learn and be educated about in a way that's like they're talking to somebody across the that's a, that's actually kind of what my newsletter is like actually yeah and so yeah, maybe like, maybe talk you should, about you should check it you should check it out yeah yeah i will and maybe for the sake of this conversation like walk us through how you think about and again you, you don't you don't have to be specific with numbers but like earnings potential for 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 good writers in the age of the internet that seems to reward like great writing talent uh, well, it's a lot easier to make money if you're writing about finance for sure, mm -hmm. you know, because people are greedy and they want to learn how to make money and they're willing to pay for ideas. You know what yeah. I mean? The one interesting thing about that, which I found very interesting is that, um, a lot of people rely on research for idea generation. Okay. But mm -hmm. idea generation is really only 10% of the process. The other 90% is execution and risk management. Ideas are cheap. Ideas are very, very cheap. Like a lot of people think the idea is the biggest thing. It's really not. It's the smallest thing. Um, but in terms of talking about like earnings potential for writers, like, you know, for example, my Substack, I don't know how many followers you think it has, but it has about 6,200. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, you know, when I initially did this, I said, well, I could I could turn it into a paid Substack and maybe get a thousand paid subscribers and make eighty grand a year, um, but I was like, well, then only a thousand people are going to read my stuff, and I want a lot of people to read my stuff. So what I decided to do instead was to keep it free and just turn it into a book and sell the book, you know? Yeah. Um, and I'm actually making less money doing that, but it's much more rewarding. So. So where did you think of the dirty or the, the daily dirt nap? Like how did, like, how did that idea, uh, you know, spring up? Well, you know, when I was at Lehman, we used to get the Garmin letter. So this is back in like 2003. And I was like, this guy's got the best gig in the world. Like he's living in Virginia beach and he's writing about markets and all the banks are subscribed to this and he's making a ton of money. I've heard a bunch of estimates as to how much Garmin was making, uh, on the low end, I heard four million a year. On the high end, I heard ten million a year. Uh, oh. I, I think I think four million is probably closer to the right number. Um, and I'm like, this is this is the best business of all time, you know. So that's what I want to do. Mm -hmm. And you've got like your website is interesting because it's, and I wonder if you've if if you've done this on purpose, but it's there's a lot more friction involved with subscribing to your daily dirt nap than like a traditional sub stack. Like you have to physically email and like the payment and stuff isn't necessarily right on there. Like it's very interesting. Um, and I'm, and I'm, and I'm wondering if you kind of added the friction on purpose to maybe more closely select like who your readers are. Well, I don't necessarily turn anybody away, but I will say that the people who subscribe really, really want to subscribe. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? And, um, it's, it's also, I found, you know, if you click on the subscribe button and you send me an email and I respond to it personally, like the personal touch increases the conversion rate, you know, so I've yeah. actually experimented with having the form on the website and my revenue actually went down. That's wild. Yeah. That seems like something that would be on that, uh, inside that predictably irrational book. Um, is that, cause like on first glance, like that does not necessarily make sense, <laughs> but again, that's yeah. me in my, in my limited capacity. Yeah. Um, I want to, I want to shift to one of your essays that you wrote, which is probably one of my favorites. Um, just because I tend, I tend to agree with it is your essay on uh, finances depraved. And for those that haven't wrote or haven't read it, I'll, I'll post it in the show notes 
where you can where you can go and kind of and kind of read along. But um, I'd love for you to kind of unpack that essay here and walk us through, you know, why you decided to write it, like like what it what it is, like what it means for finance to be depraved, and 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 maybe this can weave into some lessons that you've learned during your time at Lehman and inside, you know, the corporate finance world. Well, I start off that essay by talking about Nassim Taleb, who. Uh, when, when I joined Facebook in 2008, I, mm -hmm. one of the first things I did was I looked up Nassim Taleb to see if he had a group or something and he did. And in the, in, in the notes on the group, he said, nobody can talk about finance because finance is depraved. I was like, what the fuck this guy? Like, what is he talking about? Like, I like finance. Like what's the matter with finance, you know? And I got to tell you, over 15 years, I've really under come to understand what he was talking about. Um, you know, finance trading is about scrambling for money. It's about our basis instincts. And in that piece, I also talked about the culture of Wall Street, um, how the music is terrible. Like, if if you work on Wall Street, you listen to Fish, the Allman Brothers, or Grateful Dead. Like that's it. That's all anybody does. Like, and, and, and what's interesting about those bands is that they're all jam bands, right? So you go to a fish concert and these motherfuckers will go to a fish concert like 13 nights in a row. And they're like, dude, it's different every time. And I'm like, actually, they're just exploiting the shit out of you. They're just like, they're just trying to like get 15, 13 nights of revenue out of you. Um, but, and, and I talked about the art that like hedge funds have, they buy art, they put it in the hallway and these people, these people that work at hedge funds walk by the art and they don't know what it means and they don't know the provenance and they don't know, they don't know anything about it. They know, they don't know how to analyze it. You know, I think the right word here is Philistines, right? So, um, yeah, it's, it's just, it, it, it's, it's a, it's this, it's a very screwed up culture. Um, now having said that. I'm not, I'm not ripping on capitalism. I'm not ripping on capital markets. Like capital markets are absolutely necessary. Like we have, I mean, we have the best thing in the world with the markets that we have in the U S they're, you know, infinitely liquid and, you know, it's terrific, but just the culture of wall street is it's, I will say it's actually improved, uh, hmm. since the financial crisis. Um, you know, if you if you go back to say 2006, it was absolutely barbaric. Um, I, I will say that it, that it's improved, but even though the culture has improved, risk taking has gone down, which is a bad thing. So, hmm. can you expand on that more in terms of like in 2006? If you have any stories on on just how barbaric it was, maybe from kind of the inside the ropes the ropes of you. I mean, I know people can watch like documentaries on 06 through 08, you know, the GFC, but you know, someone that lived through it in Lehman working inside one of the, you know, one of the big guys that went bust, like what sort of barbary did you experience? Um, it was a time of spectacular excess, just spectacular excess. So, I mean, if you can imagine it, it was happening, you know, strip clubs, dinners, bars, you know, all that stuff. Um, it just, it just gross amounts of money, uh, you know, bottle service at clubs, all that stuff. Um, all that's gone. Like that doesn't exist anymore. It's like absolutely gone. So, um, and also like just in terms of like working on a trading floor, like everybody is not necessarily your friend. Like people are not necessarily looking out for you. Like hmm. it's a very tough political environment. Like you, you, you have to have, uh, you know, a baseball bat and a flashlight in order to function in this environment. So, yeah, that's weird. And, you know, when people don't have your back, is it like, is it because you're trading maybe two different strategies or, cause I feel like if you all work at the same bank and you know, you're both traders, you're, you've got one common goal to make the bank a ton of money. And regardless of how you do it, like, you know, you guys are kind of rooting each other on, but I mean, is that completely off base? Uh, well, there was one point there was one point where the swaps desk was started. It started to be in competition with the ETF desk. So I was running the ETF desk at the time mm -hmm. and the swaps desk was sending out all this marketing material as, Hey, you can trade a custom index instead of an ETF, stop trading ETFs, trade swaps. So there was this competition between two desks 
on the same trading floor and it was really unhealthy. So got it. No, I mean, that's, that's a, that's a perfect example. Um, at, at, at one point in the piece, you know, the same finances to pray peace, you mentioned this desire to go from being a trader to being a creator. And, you know, obviously a creator for you is to be, to be a writer. And I think it's important to you. And you mentioned it in the essay, not, not just to be a finance writer, but to be a writer full stop. Yeah. Um, and so walk us through, you know, why that's so important to you. And, and maybe you know, the kind of come to Jesus moment you had of like, wait, I don't want to be a trader. I just want to create, I want to create something that's valuable with, with words on a page that inspire people. Yeah, I also want to create things that outlive me. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, if you're a trader, you're an ETF trader, you make markets for 20 years, you retire, you make a ton of money, you you move to, you know, God knows where, uh, you know, Boca Raton or something like that. Like, it's like that quote in Troy, you know, where Achilles says, that's why nobody will remember your name. Mm. Like, nobody will remember your name. I wanted to create things that outlasted me so that when I die, my books will still be on Amazon. My music will still be on SoundCloud. It'll outlive me. And that's the point. So do you make music? Uh, so I'm a DJ. I, I mix music. Okay. I have, I have produced one track. Okay. Um, so I have successfully produced one track. It's, it's okay. It's not suitable for B port, but um it's but yeah I, i'm i do a lot of music yeah okay no that's cool and and you know there's 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 a lot of undertones of just kind of inspiration and finding inspiration and 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 we briefly touched on it um you know kind of with your story of finding inspiration whether it's you know something in a grocery store um but i want to know like is there anything purposeful you do maybe throughout the day that is non-market related so like let's take like your you know your your daily dirt nap which is a daily market commentary is there anything you do or stuff that you read or watch or listen to that feeds into this inspiration that when you look at it is not directly related to finance and markets, but drastically improves your ability to kind of get inspired to do new work? Uh, I pet my cats. I play with my cats. <laughs> there you go. I have seven cats. But no, I look for I look for inspiration everywhere um tv shows movies radio just any you know and things i'm reading you know i get inspiration from all kinds of places so even just talking to people in town got it what's the story behind the seven cats is it you started with one and then they just brought their friends and yeah pretty much <laughs> <laughs> that's fantastic well we're coming up on 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 an hour here and you know i've i've, I've kind of selfishly picked your brain about writing and 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 an inspiration and, and it's been fantastic and i just want to know if there's anything that maybe we missed that you would like to bring up and that you would like to discuss maybe lessons learned um from writing you know the book those bastards which is just you know again a, a series of essays that you've that you've written on substack and maybe we can end end the discussion with looking back of all those essays you've written like what did you learn most and maybe like how have how how has that experience transformed you well, I will say when uh, I started the Substack, uh, it was, I had visions of it being a very brash, bold, a uh, lot of bravado, like very masculine type of blog, you know, mm. a lot of swearing. And, yep. and then it kind of evolved over time. Like it became much more thoughtful. And I ended up writing a lot of things about mental health. I wrote a lot of things about, um, I wrote a lot of success literature, um, really more uplifting pieces, you know? Um, and that's, that's the funny thing about the book. I mean, it's called those bastards, you know, it's like this, you know, very angry title, but like, it's actually a very uplifting book. Like there's a lot of very positive messages in there. Um, and you know, the, a lot of the reviews and the blurbs I've gotten have basically said that this is like a guide to living. I mean, this is really, you know, it's philosophy, it's Montaigne. It's like how you want to live your life. So that's pretty awesome. And did you ever, did you ever think, you know, kind of, kind of tying this all back when, when you sent that, you know, when you finished writing that piece in the psych ward handed to the author that one day you would be writing novels and 
like changing people's lives and, you know, creating, creating a book that, that some people call is kind of a guide to life. And like, I, I know like my, my, my friend, uh, Frederick on, on uh, Twitter, he's, he's been devouring your book and posting quotes about it. And, um, that's actually where I, where I saw you and ended up buying the book. Um, you know, did, did, did that ever cross your mind that like this, this could be kind of your reality? You know, God has a much bigger imagination than I do. You know, in 2006, when I was in that mental hospital, if you told me that in 15 years, I would have four books and newsletters and short stories and music and all this stuff, you know, not to mention a successful career on Wall Street, I would have punched you in the nose. Like, I didn't <laughs> think it was possible. I was yeah. just trying to survive, you know, like my basically like my goal was to go back to work and function and stay alive. Like hmm. that was what I was trying to do. I didn't, I nowhere in a million years would I, would I have imagined all this stuff. So like I said, God has a much bigger imagination than I do. It is fascinating how much progress one can make when you boil down everything to just what's right in front of you. Like what you have to do that day to get through that day. And it's not until 15 years later, like you said, where it's 15 years of just doing what you need to do to get through that day where you look back and you're like, holy shit, like I've got four books. I've got a successful career. And, you know, it's like, I think uh, Patrick O'Shaughnessy, who does one of the best podcasts on finance, invest like the best. I don't think he's a fan of like setting goals and setting these long-term goals, but rather like doing deliberate daily habits that lead to some better better outcome in the future potentially yeah um, and it and it and it sounds like that's a lot of what you did whether it was directly or indirectly it's just look like this is what i have to do I'm doing that every day for 15 years yeah 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 absolutely the case yeah awesome well jared this has been a fantastic conversation um thank you for taking the time letting me letting me pick your brain uh i will send you some of my writing because i want to get your feedback on it and again if you have time you know <laughs> don't don't feel like you have to um but uh you know i would i would kick myself if i didn't ask at least once um for you to analyze it so yeah for sure where where can people go to find out more about you i know i'm going to post the link to your book in the show notes um, and again, this isn't like an affiliate thing. I just, I think, I think people should read your book. I think you're a great writer. So where can, where can they go to learn more? Uh, so if you're interested in financial newsletter stuff, you can subscribe to the daily dirt nap. Just go to dailydirtnap.com. Uh, my author website is jareddillion.com. If you want to listen to my music, it's, uh, just look for soundcloud.com slash DJ stochastic. Um, nice. that's a good name. Stochastic. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and obviously the book, all three of my books are available on Amazon and the second book, the novel, like I said, it didn't sell very well. Um, but that honestly, that's probably the best thing I've ever written. It's really, really good. Um, so, awesome. and then, and then you're on, you're on Twitter too, right? What's your, what's your Twitter handle? Yeah. Twitter is uh, daily dirt nap. Awesome. All right, Jared, thanks so much again. Like I said, everybody get a chance to read his book. Um, I think I think you'll really enjoy it. And I appreciate you taking the time to help me become a better writer, maybe help others um, be inspired to take that step and 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 start writing themselves. So thanks again. Yep. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Ticker. Ticker.com is focused on bringing institutional level investment research to you, the individual investor. Ticker.com is powered by S&P Global Capital IQ and has coverage of over 50,000 stocks globally with financial data, estimates, valuation metrics, ownership percentages, transcript filings, news, and more. ValueHive listeners can join Ticker's free beta trial today at ticker.com forward slash hive. That's T-I-K-R dot com forward slash hive.